Amen. Thank you, Brian. <clears throat> well, welcome to uh, welcome to church this morning. Welcome to Restoration Road. We are uh, on our way through a four-week series uh, in the Psalms uh, called the Summer Songs, and uh, today we're going to be taking a closer look at Psalm 128. Uh, last week we heard from our pastor Brian Dixon from Psalm 95. Uh, he taught us uh, from that psalm what true worship looks like. Uh, two weeks ago, Brian uh, was formally uh, installed as a pastor in our church, and uh, I'm sure that uh, all of you, as I, I am as well as, I'm sure you are as well, thrilled to have Brian uh, serving uh, in our church as a pastor and having him committed uh, for years to come. So I praise God for him and for his lovely wife, Sarah, and their three beautiful children, uh, and pray that God will bless them mightily as they serve here at Restoration Road. So today's text is from Psalm 128, and I'm going to go ahead and read that, and the words are as follows. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, I found it somewhat difficult to choose a psalm to teach for today. Uh, not because uh, there aren't very many psalms, uh, because there are quite a few, as you know, but there's so many good ones. And so I kind of bounced around. First, I was going to preach from 139, and then I was going to preach on uh, Psalm 119. Not the whole thing, mind you, but the first few verses. But then I read this psalm again, and I decided that this would be our subject of study for today. Now, this psalm um, focuses on the fear of the Lord. And that is a subject that is sometimes misunderstood, but one that is, uh, it gets a lot of ink in the Bible. It's spoken of much in the Bible. So I'd like to clarify with you a little bit about what the fear of God is, what it means to fear God, and then take a look at a few passages from the Psalms and the Proverbs mainly, which also kind of declare the virtue of godly fear as being something that we should be aspiring to or something that should be present in our hearts. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? I love God, but why would I fear a God who loves me and has forgiven me? Have you ever heard that before, something like that? Well, I have, and, and what I think that indicates is that there's a very shallow understanding of who God is and, um, and what biblical fear of God really means. Biblical fear of God doesn't mean that you're running around afraid or scared of God. It simply means that you have a healthy respect and reverence for God which stems from a knowledge of Him that results in your being obedient to Him. Now, as your knowledge of God increases, your reverence for Him grows. And this produces in you an obedience to His command. Not only is it true that to know Him is to love Him, 
But it's also true that to know Him is to fear Him. Now, just as a father desires that his children have a healthy fear of Him, in that they respect Him, and that they obey Him, and revere His authority and position, God also desires the same from all of us. The more we come to know how mighty our God is, how holy, how just, how righteous He is, while at the same time having an understanding and realizing our own smallness, our own brokenness and sinfulness, the more a holy fear of God should be growing within us. Now, people who don't know God don't fear God. It's pretty evident in our culture today that there's not a lot of fear of God on display. There's not a lot of fear of God going on around us. And no fear of God leads people to do what is right in their own eyes. And thus, people and entire nations lapse further and further into godlessness. But if the seed of the Word of God has been planted into a sinner's heart, and it begins to grow by the grace of God, and that person's conscience begins to stir, what begins to happen? Well, fear begins to to grow in their heart. Why is that? Well, because they are beginning to feel the condemnation of the law. They're beginning to feel the weight and the guilt of their sin. And that's what the law is intended to do. That's what God's law intends to do, is for people to be able to see themselves correctly as though in a mirror and see that they are sinful. Because without the law of God, oftentimes we're self-deceived. We think that we're actually pretty good. We think that we don't need a Savior. But the law helps us to see that we in fact do need a Savior because we in fact have violated God's law. And then what happens is this guilt, this feeling of condemnation is what leads us to the cross. That's what leads a sinner to Jesus Christ. It's because they have, they have um, experienced in their own heart the weight, the guilt of their own sin. And so it's an absolute need for a Savior that leads them to Jesus, that leads any one of us to Jesus. And when a sinner receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, this fear of condemnation goes away. It's replaced with peace and with joy in the Holy Spirit. But this is when a healthy fear of God continues. Or shall I say there's a a healthy fear that doesn't go away because there's this awe and respect of God that continues. Something that I've noticed in contemporary Christianity and something that I'm guilty of myself is that in our eagerness to lead people to Jesus Christ and to a saving knowledge of Him, we will oftentimes um, try and talk them into believing the good news of the Gospel without ever allowing them to feel a real conviction of their sin and rebellion against God. And the reason why that's important, I think, to, to feel that is because then that is what produces a a rightful fear of God. 
that brings that person to to a need, a felt need that they really do need a Savior. They really do need a Jesus, Jesus Christ to cover their sins, to forgive them, because, because on their own, they stand condemned. All of us, without Jesus Christ, stand condemned. We cannot please God by our own works. In other words, we will oftentimes preach the Gospel, the good news, before we preach the law or the bad news. The law always condemns, but the gospel always saves. But the gospel doesn't really make sense unless you know that you are in need of it because you are a lawbreaker. Now we see in the life and ministry of Jesus that he would often point to the law when people would come to him asking him about everlasting life, asking him questions about eternity and about salvation. You recall the story which is recorded in Luke chapter 18. There was a rich young ruler who came to him, asking him. He said, good, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus reminded him, first of all, that there's no one who's good. But then he reminded him of the Ten Commandments and asked him how he was doing with relationship to these commandments. And this rich young man thought, well, I've actually been doing really good. So he was a little self-deceived in that sense, thinking that somehow he had actually managed to fulfill these commandments. But Jesus kind of lets that go when he says, all of these commandments I have kept since my youth. What more must I do? And Jesus looked at him and said, well, knowing he was a very rich man, he says, there's one thing you lack. He says, I want you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Of course, this, the Bible tells us, made him extremely sad because he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him sadly and he looked at the others and said, it's so rare for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But rather than just telling the rich man that God... uh, loved him and had a plan for his life. He showed him that repentance of sin and the forsaking of idols was a key step in receiving salvation from God. In other words, knowledge of our sin and our idolatry brings about a fear of God's wrath upon us which leads us out to call out to God for mercy and grace. So, and I bring that up just because we're talking about the fear of God. We're talking about what it means to fear the Lord. And I think that oftentimes in our culture and in our Christianity, we sometimes lose that. We sometimes lose what it means to to have a godly fear. And we're so eager, like I said, to preach the good news that we we forget to, to remind people that there really is a need, that you really have a need for Jesus. Because without Him, you will perish. Anyway, in the, in the Bible, there are, there are lots of verses that teach us about the fear of God. And I'm just going to go through uh, half a dozen of them or so. Um, first of all, in Psalm 111.10, uh, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. And in Psalm 19.9, it says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
Psalm 34.11 declares, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And in Proverbs 10.27, he says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be cut short. Proverbs 19.23, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. And finally, one from the New Testament, from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. These are but a few verses from the pages of Scripture which extol the virtue of godly fear. This passage we're looking at, though, in Psalm 128, contains sincere promises for those who fear the Lord and who walk in His way. He begins with a godly man as the head of the home, and then he moves to his wife and to his children, and then finally to his um, uh, children's children, and upon his nation as well. So first, I want to say, first thing I want to say is that a godly man is to lead his family in fearing the Lord. The psalmist addresses uh, the man as the head of the family. In our modern world, where family has been redefined as pretty much whatever you want it to be, this teaching seems, I'm sure to some, antiquated and politically incorrect. But it is the way that God designed man and woman and the family. He holds the man responsible for the health and well-being of his wife and children, spiritually and otherwise. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Isn't that an amazing promise? We know that even though he's addressing everyone, and this this promise is for everyone, he is especially targeting men, I think, with that first statement because he eventually talks about his wife and his children. As I pointed out earlier, fearing the Lord is is paired up with walking in his ways, which means that he is obedient to the law of God. Now, the primary evidence, I think, of one who fears God, who understands salvation, who gets the gospel, is an earnest, ongoing desire to do the will of God. A man who fears God desires to know Him more. He spends time regularly with Him in the Scriptures and prays regularly, uh, not only alone, but with his wife and with his children. The man who fears God applies the Gospel to all aspects of his life. He applies it to his marriage. He applies it to uh, his child raising, raising his kids, to his job, to his relationship with his co-workers, his friends, his vacations, his hobbies and leisure time. He applies it to the movies and television shows that he watches. And on and on it goes. The gospel permeates his entire life so that in all things and in all ways, his motivation is to glorify God whether he's eating or drinking or whatever he is doing. This is the man who fears God. And the great part about it is is that he lives his life with joy. His motivation is to glorify God. 
And he's not trying to gain God's approval or acceptance by living this way. No, he knows that he already has God's approval and his acceptance and more through what Christ his Savior has done for him. You see, it's not legalism or moralism that compels him to live like this, but the knowledge of how much in, in, in how much he has received from Christ and how much he's been given by what he's done for him. He counts it all joy to live for his king. He knows how mighty God is and he knows how sinful he himself is. His heart is like the sinful woman who, who um, was in the house of the Pharisee who was anointing Jesus' feet with ointment and her own tears, wiping them with her hair, of whom Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So in all of this, this godly man who the psalm is portraying here is setting an example for his wife and his children of what a God-fearing life looks like. Now consider how much children... uh, look up to their fathers. Now, there's an implicit trust that is there just because of the relationship between father and child. Now, when kids are young, they really, really do believe that their dads are the strongest and smartest and wisest men in the world. So consider the spiritual reference in the following examples. A dad is working in his yard after a rainstorm when his daughter comes out. If I walk exactly where you walk, Daddy, I won't get any mud on my boots. In another example, a father and a son are climbing a mountain together. When they come to a challenging part of the climb, the son looks at his father and says, If you choose the best route, Dad, I'll be right behind you, and I'll be following you up. You see, there is a sense in which children will do exactly what you will do as a father. You are the biggest influence that they have in their life. But according to this passage, this this man is also a hard worker. He eats fruit which comes from the labor of his hands. He is not idle. Uh, He does not live off the hard work of others but he recognizes the blessing of work and thus he diligently provides for his family with daily toil. But he also recognizes the importance of balance and does not spend all his time at work. He's not a workaholic. But he desires also to take time to be with his family each day and recognizes the value of Sabbath. And every week he takes his family to worship and and takes time to rest. God says of this man in Psalms 128, you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Well, the second part of this psalm is about the blessing of a fruitful and faithful wife. The God-fearing man is blessed with a godly wife. says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Now, the woman is compared to a vine a vine which bears much fruit. This refers not only to the bearing of children, 
but also to her productivity as well. The faithful God-fearing woman that Solomon portrays also in Proverbs 31 is industrious, loyal, and trustworthy. She doesn't spend her days on the couch watching television shows or hours and hours a day uh, on Facebook or other social media. She's cognizant of the time, and she uses it wisely as she cares for her children and manages the home. Now, she loves her children, and whether she has just one or a dozen, she views them all as blessings from the Lord and recognizes the privilege as well as the responsibility of raising them. She's a blessing to her husband, her children, and her community. She understands the truth also taught by Solomon that charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, the third thing that comes out in this psalm is that growing fruitful children will carry on a legacy of the home into the next generation. It says, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Now, I love how the psalmist describes children as olive shoots. Olive shoots grow under the protective canopy of the mature olive tree. They depend on this tree for survival and protection, and as yet, they don't produce any fruit of their own. This is so like our own children, isn't it? Children are not perfect, and we ought not raise them as though they were. Now, they depend on us as parents to show them the way, to teach them how to live life. And along the way, as they make a lot of mistakes, we gently correct them, pointing them to the truth. Gradually, as they get older, they will start producing fruit all on their own. Now, the hope of every godly parent, of course, is that their children will come to know Jesus at a very young age and never stray far away from him. Every parent hopes that their child will be like a Joseph or a Daniel. Isn't that true? Unfortunately, there ain't that many of them around, are there? So we have to do the best with what we got, right? So um, for all of you... Um, parents with young children, and we as a church have lots of young children. As you heard um, Aaron say just a little bit ago, we have like 80 children that we uh, teach on a regular basis downstairs during the services here. Um, listen to what I'm going to tell you. First of all, there is no guarantee in Scripture, there's no guarantee that our kids will be saved. Now there's a high likelihood that they will be, because God is a God of families. He tends to bless our children when we believe. But we cannot give our children new birth, can we? We cannot give it to them. We cannot say, all right, this is yours now. They cannot just take it themselves either. And they can't buy it. We can't buy it for them. God is the one who brings about regenerating faith into the heart's of sinners that he chooses to save, and that includes our children as well. Let me remind you of a verse from John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is the one who gives new birth, and he gives it to whomever he wills. But according to the Scriptures, there's something 
that will tilt the odds in our children's favor. And that something is the fear of the Lord. Not only does this psalm that we've been reading today teach this, but let me read to you a couple of more um, that teaches this. Psalm 103, verse 17 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him in His righteousness to children's children. Psalm 112, verses 1 and 2 says this, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So while it's true that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation or the salvation of our children, the Scriptures do promise that where the fear of God is present in the hearts of parents, that He blesses their children. That's just what I get when I read those verses. Again, nothing we can do will guarantee that our children will be saved. But because God is a God of families, and because He's the one who created the family, and because He has promised us these things, we can trust that God will bless our children forever when we have this gospel fear in our homes and in our hearts. The fourth thing that comes from this passage is that God's blessing is generational and national. In the sixth verse, the man is pictured as an old man enjoying his grandchildren as they flourish under the same blessings from God. There's nothing compared to the riches of seeing the Christian faith passed on from generation to generation. I, for one, am so blessed and so thankful to be a grandfather myself. I know I don't look like I should be a grandfather. I look so young. So some people tell me. I don't think so. But I, um, I'm a grandfather, and to have my granddaughter, little Ruby, here every Sunday when I come here is just an extreme blessing. It's, it's so amazing to see the faith, the Christian faith passed on to the next generation. And, um, but not only my granddaughter, but to have her parents here, and then to have my granddaughter's maternal grandparents here as well, and great-grandparents, that's four generations in our little church. And I think they're all here this morning. Is It just makes my cup run over. I mean, it, it's very, very gratifying. Leaving a godly legacy for your children should be the goal of all Christian parents. Although the faith and godliness of your children is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit, God often uses the influence of parents to make a great impact on their children. Now, there's a great example from history that I want to uh, share with you. It's, a, it's, a hist- it's, a, it's an example of this Puritan preacher named Jonathan Edwards, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. There was, um, he and his wife, Sarah, were married and had 11 children. And um, because Jonathan Edwards, the godly man that he was, um, about 150 years after his death, there was an American educator and pastor whose name was A.E. Winship. And so he studied kind of the legacy of John Edwards and his children and his grandchildren on down the line. But at the same time, he also studied this other man whose name was Max Jukes and, and studied his, kind of his progeny as well um, to see what his legacy looked like. Max Jukes was a man who didn't fear the Lord. He wasn't a Christian. And 
and as I was reading this, I know there's there's some people who are skeptical of his study. He did this at around the you know the, the turn of the 20th century, so about 1900, a little over 100 years ago. You know when there was no internet, there was no nothing. But he did a lot of this. He did did this study, and this is what he found. So take it for what it's worth. But it does illustrate, I think, a good example of how a godly life will produce godly offspring for generations. We'll take a look at uh, Max Jukes's. Um, family first. He had over 1,200 descendants in that 150 years. Um, he found that 310 were professional vagrants. Uh, 440 were physically wrecked by lives of debauchery and uncleanness. 130 went to the penitentiary for an average of 13 years each. Seven of these were murderers. 100 were alcoholics. 60 were habitual thieves. 190 were prostitutes. And of the 20 who learned a, a trade, 10 learned it at a state prison. Collectively, they cost the state of New York over a million dollars. So that's his legacy. But then take a look at uh, the New England preacher, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, so what he found among his descendants, 300 became pastors, missionaries, and theological professors. Over 100 became college professors. Uh, over 100 became lawyers, including 30 judges. Over 60 became physicians. Over 60 authored good books. 14 became presidents of universities. Three became United States congressmen. And one became a United States vice president. Powerful example of how a parent's leadership can have a profound effect on their children. Now, I realize that you may be thinking, wow, I don't measure up to Jonathan Edwards. I don't measure up to this guy in the Psalms. So why do you keep rubbing this in my face? I don't measure up to the Proverbs 31 woman. I don't measure up to this woman here either. And I understand that. Look, I, I've been beating myself up all week uh, as I prepared for this because this is, the, but this is God's just saying this is what this godly man looks like. This is what it looks like to fear the Lord. Okay, so we're preaching it as it is in the Bible, but that's the thing about the Word of God. The Word of God, when we come under it, we submit ourselves to the Word of God and we see how lacking we are. And if that ought nothing to do, if it ought to do anything with you, it ought to lead you to the, back to the cross and back to Jesus, right? Because He is perfect. He did it all, right? Well, I would estimate that pretty much we all feel that same way, and I include myself in that. But don't despair. Don't despair when you feel like you don't measure up, and don't be prideful if you think that you do. Consider this a moment in time where you can just assess your own spiritual temperature and evaluate where you are with regard to the fear of the Lord in your own heart. Do you have the utmost respect and reverence for God and His Word? Do you take the time to read the Bible regularly and do you teach the truths of God to your children? Are you cultivating a life of prayer in your life and in your home? Do you have an earnest desire to obey God and, and live a life that's in accordance to His Word? Believe me, as I said, these are questions I've been asking myself and finding myself to be far from perfect, finding myself to be in a place where there's a lot that I could change in my life to live a life that's more glorifying to Him as well. But remember... We're not saved by our reverence or respect of God. But it is a sign that God has done a work in us and is still in the process of changing us. 
Finally, when we look at this text, I believe that this text is telling us that God blesses nations that fear the Lord. What is a nation but a family of families? I believe that part of the reason why our own country has been so blessed over the years is because there used to be in many families the fear of, the, of, of God influencing their lives and their decisions that they made. Even among our elected leaders, this was true. Sadly, this is now less true than ever before. But the fact that God hasn't judged our nation yet may have something to do with the remnant of faithful, God-fearing Christians who remain here. Let us not give up speaking the truth and doing what's right. There exist many opportunities for us to speak up. The issues of abortion and biblical marriage are but a couple. Remember that what happened to Israel because that chosen nation of God lost their fear of Him and reverted to idolatry again and again face the judgment of God. And that can very well happen in our country as well. In closing, I just want to say that we serve a mighty, powerful, yet loving and gracious God. He desires us to have a relationship with Him. Not that He needs to, but He desires it. We as human beings are the crown jewel of His creation. Though He could have terminated the human race many times since He created us, because of our sin, He has graciously determined. He graciously determined to rescue us from our brokenness. In time, He sent His only Son, Jesus, to live among us. He experienced life here as one of us. But He was different than any of us. He was perfect. He never yielded to temptation. Not even once. But He didn't come just to live a perfect life. He also came to die for us. And not just to die, but to suffer excruciating pain, death on a Roman cross. Because He loves you, you and me. But He didn't stay dead. Because on the third day He rose again for you and for me. And after 40 days with His disciples and others, He ascended into heaven. One day He will return and He will gather His own we will spend forever with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that through this psalm You have spoken to each of us this morning. If any of us lacks a holy fear of You, I pray that You would change that by Your Holy Spirit. If anyone lacks faith this morning, I pray that You would increase it so that we might glorify You more by the lives You have given us to live. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.